to get ready for the summer because the summer is like five weeks away mm -hmm. and all the parents are going, oh no. Um, so please be praying for our parents and all the kids are, are excited at the same time. So please be doing that. But as we enter into this new sermon series, we're going to be looking at Philemon. So you can open your Bible to Philemon. It's First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. If you're not looking for that, you're going to miss it because it's like one page in your Bible. So First and Second Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon. Or you can look in the table of contents in the, at the beginning of the Bible, and you can find that from there. As we continue to worship our awesome God through the preaching, let me ask you a few things. Do you know what God's grace does in someone's life? I know we can reflect upon that ourselves and we can think, wow, God's grace is everything. But have you ever wondered what the power of the gospel does in someone's life? How does it change someone? As God calls someone out of darkness and into his marvelous kingdom of light, what does that do to someone? What changes in the heart of someone that has been called to Christ who is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit? What does God's grace in our life actually do? So if you have your Bibles, please open the Philemon chapter 1. And here is a personal letter, not only written to Philemon, but also to the church as he hosts in his house. Philemon was a wealthy slave-owning Christian who lived in the city of Colossae. He has heard the gospel that Paul preached and was saved and started to serve the cause of Christ in that city. It is here he even opened up his own home to the church that met there. We are also introduced to another man in this book, in this letter, called Onesimus, who was one of Philemon's slaves who ran away from Rome, ran away to Rome, and he probably took some money with him to get him from A to B, and he probably went to Rome because it's a big city where he could probably hide, but guess who else was in Rome? The greatest proclam proclaimer of the gospel that we probably ever had, which is the Apostle Paul. And as God brought Onesimus into Paul's view, Paul did what Paul does, he preached the gospel. And as Paul was preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit used that to convict Onesimus of his need of a savior, and God began to change him, as the gospel does. And, but even though there was reconciliation between the most important relationship between Onesimus and God, there was still reconciliation that needed to happen between Onesimus and his master, Philemon. So Philemon is about what happens in the life of an individual Christian and how it affects the interaction between those within the body of Christ. It's about reconciliation and relationships and the power of the gospel by the grace of God to transform lives of those who were useless to useful and has an impact in our relationship. So as we spend four weeks, and that four weeks is going to be split up in June 12th as we have a commissioning service for Pastor Sam and Kelly as they are being commissioned to reach out into our own community. But let us remember that how Christians are supposed to treat each other in light of the grace that God has shown us. So if you have your Bibles, 
I'm actually going to use this opportunity to do something. I'm going to be reading through Philemon every week. And I think it's a great example of how we are to come to God's word. It is a letter. When was the last time you read part of a letter and then put it down? You don't. At least I hope you don't. But Philemon is a short letter, so we're able to read it in one shot. So please follow along. And as I forgot to mention, please ignore my good friend, Daniel Batasso, as he takes video and pictures. Ignore him, but meet his wife. <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> All right. The word of God says this in Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of the every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because your hearts, for, sorry, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Verse 8, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me, to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At, that, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will, graciously, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so does Mark, Articus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Father, we come together to continue to worship you. Oh, Lord, our God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And Lord Jesus Christ, you are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed for God those from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we come to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. Help us to listen with worship of what your word has to say. And Lord, there is no possible way that I can make this turn out well, so will you not do that? And Lord, I pray that same prayer for other churches that are preaching the gospel in London. And I specifically think of West London Alliance and Pastor Jude. May you bless them as they seek to be faithful to you, faithful disciples who are making disciples of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I want to praise you. I want to speak of you. And God, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. And use this sermon to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. As you spend time reading all of Philemon, all 25 verses, I would also encourage you maybe throughout the week to pick it up. It's a very short passage and it could take you a couple minutes to read it through so that we understand the full context of what is happening. But for those who are worrying, no, I'm not preaching all 25 verses. We're just going to do the first three today. And as we look at verse 1, we see hello from us all. Here is Paul. We're introduced to Paul right off the bat. This is a man. I, I, actually, it's funny how God works things together uh, because I didn't watch the video. Uh, and we were introduced to a little bit of Paul's testimony. But Paul is a man that God called on the road to Damascus. He was on his way, actually, to imprison and to kill the people of God in another city. He was sent with a letter from the priests in Jerusalem to go do that. But God entered into his life in a way that is miraculous. And that's what happens when we are encountered with who Jesus is. God called him, he transformed him, and changed him. God so dramatically stepped into his life, he changed, Paul changed from an oppressor of the church to a proclaimer of the very thing he was trying to snuff out. And now he finds himself in prison for proclaiming the gospel. It's really an amazing example of the transforming power of the gospel. For all of us, when I look at Paul, I am constantly reminded that there is no one so far from God's grace. And that's why we pray. But here's Paul, who's now a prisoner of, of Jesus Christ. As we see here, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. In many letters, Paul starts his, uh, who he is. He describes who he is as apostle. But most of the time, especially even in the letter of Galatians, he's establishing his apostleship and his authority. But here, he's identifying himself as a prisoner. But don't be mixed up here. He's not lacking authority. Even in, the, in that one word, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, he's establishing authority for himself. But why does Paul mention he's a prisoner in a world that would look down on him for this? A prisoner wasn't exactly a, you know, a great career path. But he was called himself a prisoner. I like how Calvin painted this great picture uh, when he's talked about this passage because the chains by which he was bound 
on account of the gospel were the ornaments or badges of that embassy which he exercised for Christ. No longer was him being a prisoner, literally, and we'll get into figuratively, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. It wasn't a shame thing for him. It was a badge of honor. I am being faithful to what God has called me to. I faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul shares his status to strengthen his authority. But Paul is telling Philemon in the church that he is in jail for carrying out the calling that Jesus gave him. It's interesting, there's a strategy that Paul is using here. Because another reason, as one other person named Martin Luther said, Paul empties himself of this right to compel Philemon also to waive his rights. So Paul is trying, he's tying himself to the weak and the powerless Onesimus who was a slave, who is writing on the behalf of this person, Onesimus, who was of low social status to his owner, his master, Philemon. He's also careful not to assert his apostolic status as he will later, as we just read, will ask Philemon for a favor. But I love this part right here, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Because actually, when you get into the Greek of Philemon, there's an interesting thing that happens here. This is, prisoner is a genitive case, which means there's a possession that happens. Some translations, like the King James Version or the NIV or the CSB, don't use the word for, but they use of. So you're literally reading Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not for. And that changes things as we look at this. Paul isn't just communicating the why he's in jail or trying to relate to Onesimus. Paul could have said that he was a prisoner of Caesar, which was true. He was a prisoner of Caesar, but here he specifically says, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why? Let me ask you, who is superior to all? Who is ultimately in control? The decision to put Paul, and Paul is very clear on this, and even in that one little, like, five words, that he was put into prison not because of a human decision, but it was Jesus' direction. Jesus is the owner of Paul and the cause of his imprisonment, and Paul knows that he belongs to Christ because Christ is the one who shed his blood for him, who called him, who purchased him, who ransomed him. And because of that, he is in prison, and he knows that it's because Jesus allowed it. He talks about this in Philippians 1 verse 7. But Paul's suffering is also a mark of his apostleship as well, which really gives um, a greater weight to any suggestion that he will make, which we'll see later on in the coming weeks. But Paul may not be using his his typical apostolic authority in his introduction, but by using these words, he clearly states who he is and why he's in prison. And God had reconciled this man who was once an enemy of God. And Paul describes himself as the worst of the worst. Who was once an enemy of God. And he calls him to himself. And he was on his way to be killing and imprisoning God's people. And now he's, in, he's a prisoner for the very thing that he was seeking to persecute others for. 
God's grace is transforming. It's amazing. And for us to come and say, oh, look, that person's too far gone, there's no part of the Bible that says that. If God has called, if God has elected, he will call. And this is the same relationship that Paul and Philemon share as well. As we look at, uh, as he further goes on and Paul describes Timothy, our brother. See, Paul wasn't actually Timothy's literal brother, which makes us ask him questions. In fact, Timothy was a Gentile. He is later circumcised as a missionary. And Paul was Jewish. And they wouldn't have normally associated this way. So what is he talking about when he's addressing Timothy as his brother? Is that, the, is that the grace that called Paul and Timothy into the same family, the family of God. So now they are brothers. So when I say to, when we have communion, and I say, okay, I'm going to ask my brother Peter, my brother Dave or Dave, pray. I'm not joking around. We're brothers. I can call other people like April sister because we are, have been brought in from, uh, we've been scattered and we were our own individual people. God saved us and he called us into a family, into the family of God. In our prayer time, uh, one of the people who was praying was, saying, was praying that God would bind us together. In the back of my head, I had that old school song. Uh, bind us together, Lord. I tried to get Pastor Matt to sing it today, and he trumped me on that. <laughs> but that is the essence here. Paul calls Timothy a brother because of the grace that God has poured out on his life. And then he comes and he describes Philemon as a beloved fellow worker. Philemon was a close personal friend and was cl worked closely with Paul in ministry. Paul had gone to the Colossae, he preached the gospel, and Philemon was one of the ones that got saved in that process. God saved him. And he worked, not only did God save him, but he worked closely with Paul in that ministry. There is such a warmth in this personal relationship as you hear how Paul describes Philemon. Philemon belongs to a community of mutual love, and you see a thread of what the grace of God does in relationships throughout this letter. Paul could also be pointing to how Philemon is not only loved by Paul, but loved by God when he uses that word beloved. I love Romans 1, 7, which says, so all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Something that I've been dwelling upon is that concept of viewing our, myself and viewing ourselves, if we are in Christ, in light of how God loves us. See, the grace of God changes everything. It changes our status before God as he reconciles us to himself, but it even changes our relationships with one another. These are the relationships that are forged by God's grace rather than human strength. That's why you can come to a church like Nolwood, and I praise God for Nolwood, and I look out and I see different generations and, and different likes and, and different ethnicities coming together to do what? Worship God. You see examples of that in Revelation 7, which is a beautiful passage of every tribe, of every nation coming to declare who he is. 
And in verse 2, we see a hello to you all as the letter continues on. This letter is not just intended for Philemon, but the whole church that is gathering in his house. Wouldn't you love that? Getting a personal letter. You're like, oh, sweet, a letter from my best bud, Paul. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, wait, I guess this is for the whole church, too. (laughs) But why does he mention other people? For example, we have Apphia, our sister. We don't know much about her, but maybe she was Philemon's wife. She's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But the gospel, again, the gospel has transformed the relationship between Paul and her so that Paul considers her in such a close relationship that he calls her sister. And then we get Archippus, who is a fellow soldier, who would have also been part of Philemon's household, maybe possibly being his son. We're actually introduced to him in Colossians 4, verse 17, where Paul charges him that he would fulfill the ministry that has been received from the Lord. The gospel transforms us by the grace of God. And when that happens, we are constricted as soldiers of Christ, which is something that we need to be reminded of. So let me be clear. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 says, Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Christian life is a fight in that Christians face a never-ending struggle against evil, which means there's never a vacation. You never retire from it. You retire from it when you're in the grave. We continue to fight. And not against the, not in an earthly military campaign, but in a spiritual battle against Satan himself. But our captain is already victorious. So we don't fight with some sort of, "Mm, this might not work out. We know it will. We've read the end of the book. But it means we should be putting on the whole armor of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 6.11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. My grandfather uh, served in the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, mostly overseas in Germany. He was a mechanic. He worked on the big bomber planes during that wonderful time of nuclear threat. They often talk to me about how, you know, when, when the planes, the, the, the mentality was when the nuclear bombers went up in the air, you were done. They weren't coming back and you were probably being bombed. It was an interesting time for them. But in the Canadian military, there's this concept of soldier first. And even though he was a mechanic working on the planes, he was still trained as in basic training to handle a rifle because he was a soldier first. And I think we forget that in the Christian life, we are soldiers. We've all been trained, regardless of our gifting or our ministry, we're all called to put on the armor of God and to be, as Paul describes this man, a fellow soldier. The condition of a soldier belongs to all Christians, not just the teachers, not just the preachers or some sort of form of super Christian. Sometimes we forget that we are in the middle of a war and we get comfortable. We enjoy our couches too much. 
We enjoy our coffee time too much, which we enjoy. But we forget that we're in this middle of a war and we let our guard down or we become comfortable coasting through our lives, but we are in the middle of an active battle. Satan is always lobbing grenades. So we need to every day be putting on the whole armor of God. And as Paul was writing this letter, he thought of himself as a warrior as well, never quitting, never wavering in his zeal for Jesus. That's why he's in prison. He also understood where his resources and his strength came from to fight that good fight. And Paul says to Archippus that he is a fellow soldier fighting along with Paul the good fight. And if you have been called by Jesus, you too are called to be a soldier. May we fight the good fight. As 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, and be watchful in all things, enduring affliction, and do the work of the evangelists, fulfilling our ministry. God's grace transform us is not only into brothers and sisters, but also to f- soldiers of Christ. And Paul is also writing this not only to these two people of the household of Philemon, but to the whole church that is gathering. The church didn't have its own building at that time, so they gathered in homes. So Paul isn't just talking to Philemon, but to the whole church that is gathering there at that moment, at that time. So this is also about how God's grace enables us to live in a Christian community. And sometimes it's, something is so clear, though, that when Paul describes Aphia as his sister, there is a marked group of people who voluntarily commit to one another. I love how sometimes churches have a, um, a church covenant, and they often start with something like this, having be led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. And you see the foundations of that here. The grace of God transform us. And if Paul writes this letter to Philemon, why does he mention all these people? Because it's also for all of us today. In verse 3, he ends off his greeting with saying, Grace to you and peace with God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the formal greeting of a letter. Most Greco-Roman letters, if you go back in time, it's all structured the same way. But he says, Grace a favorable attitude towards someone. To you, he says, it's talking about a gift, a generosity, a kindness, a favor. In the Bible, what this really is talking about is the unique and special kind of and merciful action of God as he rescues his people by the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a grace that is unique to the Bible. There is no other religious system, thoughts, that have such a strong emphasis on God's divine grace as we see in God's word. There's really only two types of religions, ones that you work for and ones that you're you're saved by God's amazing grace, and there's only one that does that, (laughs) to clarify. Grace means that you can't earn it at all, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And the outcome of that grace, as Paul continues on in his little greeting, and peace from God, 
tranquility, well-being, a state of concord from God. This is a peace that only comes from God. It is a peace that includes the presence of God and the Holy Spirit as a gift. This is a peace that comes from having faith in Jesus Christ. This is a peace with God that comes through reconciliation that has been achieved by Jesus Christ alone. It is a peace that overflows and affects our Christian relationships with one another and our community together. It's amazing how this simple greeting is not just a simple greeting, but communicates an amazing deep truth. It's, as deep, it's, a, it's a deep theological prayer for the spiritual and social good of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that we do the same thing, that we pray the same way. And as Paul continues, he says, our Father. God's grace transforms not only the relationship between Paul and Philemon and, and Onesimus, but it also changes the most important relationship between God and Paul. As he says, our Father. God's grace transforms our relationship not only within the relationships within the church, but with God. See, because our sin separated us from God. We've all sinned. The Bible's very clear on that. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The ability to be able to call God our Father, something had to have happened. If sin has separated us, has estranged us, if our rebellion has, has made it impossible for us to have a relationship with God, how could we in our natural state call God our Father? We can't. It's impossible. But Paul says, our Father. And that's when Jesus comes in. Jesus says down from his throne, God the Father sends God the Son to pay the price for my sin, for my rebellion, so that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior can have this relationship with a holy God. The grace of God reconciles the believer to the most important relationship, God, because we no longer stand condemned but forgiven. But that overflows into all of our Christian relationships because our identity is no longer found in who we are or what we do or, I don't know, the color of your hair. I think Matt and I are the only ones, so it would be a small club. But it's found in whose we are. Christ paid for us. He reconciled us. He redeemed us. And now we are adopted sons and daughters in God's family. As he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ, another great example of how Jesus is the same, at the same level as God the Father. Jesus isn't some demigod. He is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there is only one. So what, you may ask yourself. And here's the thing. When God grabs hold of your life, when by the power of the Holy Spirit you become Christ, a Christian, you don't stop being who you are. You don't stop suddenly becoming a, you're not, like if you're a parent, you're not stopping being a parent, okay? You, you never stop being an employee. You never stop being a student. You never stop being a, any of these things or et cetera. But your first adjective to describe who you are is no longer those things, but is Jesus, what the grace of God does is it radically transforms our relationships with the people in our lives. So the main point is this, by God's grace, God's grace transforms our relationship with God and with others in, our, in his family. 
What Paul understood as he was writing this letter to Philemon was that God had established new relationships, that God had not only reconciled Philemon and Paul and the others to himself, but also to each other. So the first thing we get from this is that the first new relationship that God in his richness of his grace and mercy establishes is between God and a sinful human like you and me. And that is mind-blowing. Like, we could probably end it right there. Listen to Ephesians 1, 4, and 8. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons or daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, that the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he, I love this word, lavished. Grace upon grace upon grace, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Think about this with me. If you are in Christ, you have a relationship with the only one who is holy. And what God did through Jesus Christ is accomplish forgiveness of our sins, our rebellion, our treason, and not only forgives us, but brings us into his family as his chosen people. And that is mind-blowing. The second thing that happens, and a second new relationship is between one another. As Christians, we are brought into a new relationship not only with God, but with each other. This is why I'm so thankful for this church. For each one of you who understand this, we together by God's grace have a new relationship which, with each other. And God has reconciled believers not only to himself, but also to one another. Colossians 2 talks about this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Jesus Christ. Or in Ephesians 2, it says, uh, it's, it, it says this, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for they for though he, 
sorry, for through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You get it? We've been reconciled to one another. Paul talks about it again in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all what one in Christ. And something that I pray often for us as a church, I pray it very often, is this that we would be united amid diversity, loving those with whom we have nothing in common but the gospel. Jesus accomplishes this all on the cross, and we can't do it without that. This is why there's no room to think of yourself better or to think of someone lesser than you. It, It could be ethnicity, it could be your social status, your income, your education, your age, whatever it may be, there is no room because if God has reconciled you to himself, he has also reconciled you to those who he's called into that family. This also enables us to love, bear with one another. Let me say that again, bear with one another, serve one another care for one another, rebuke one another, edify one another, be gracious to one another because we are in Christ. And we are Christ's. You want relationships like that? You can't have them without Jesus. This world is tearing itself apart and it has for thousands of years. And it will continue to until Jesus comes back. But the church is an amazing picture of what God's transforming grace can do. I think about that, not to, I think I said this before, when, when the war in Ukraine first broke out and seeing a Zoom uh, meeting with Russian and Ukrainian pastors praying together. Their identity is not Ukrainian or Russian, it's Christ's. And that's what brings them together. I'm sure that there was a lot of things that they had to overcome in just that. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's possible through what Christ has done. God's grace transforms our relationships with God and with the others in his kingdom, in his family. As we continue to worship our awesome God, let's pray.